Governments around the world have used the COVID-19 pandemic as an opportunity to consolidate power and restrict the freedoms of their citizens. This is Brief Before Impact. Welcome everyone to episode 28. I am your host, Matt Parker. You know, when I think about the American people and how they responded to the challenges that we all faced during the pandemic, I'm led to believe that Americans are sacrificial people. You know, when the team needs to pull together and get something done, Americans will step up. You know, whether it was working from home or social distancing or taking personal hygiene to super, you know, superhero levels, Americans answer the call. Now, this appeared to be true in a lot of countries around the world. You know, initially, the data reported about the virus was limited in those very early days, but what it did tell was kind of a frightening story. And frankly, it scared a lot of people. So when political leaders ordered the strict adherence to new guidelines for living, you know, citizens did what they were told. However, it wasn't long before the trust of the citizens that they were putting in their governments quickly began to deteriorate. Now, while every country had its has its uniqueness, the trust of the United States diminished over time because of the lack of data-driven policies, the lack of that trust that regular citizens had in their public health officials. Because it appeared that decisions for how our society should operate were not necessarily being driven by purely the data arriving that available to all of us, but rather political games were being played, which was rather frustrating to watch. So it wasn't just that the health policy became overtly political, but even there became this moral imperative behind this policy. You would be actually demonized if you were hesitant to receive the vaccine or you thought shutting down businesses' ability to operate was a foolish idea. So someone would signal kind of their virtue publicly not just by wearing one mask, no, but by wearing two to prove how serious they were about spreading the risk of the virus. Now, obviously, some of that kind of behavior is driven by fear, but you put all this together. Average citizens were quickly becoming confused, impatient, and really irritated by the whole situation. Leaders would flip-flop on their policy recommendations, and with the fear of the virus and confusion on policy, Uh, Political leaders demanded compliance to strict lockdown measures and even criticized citizens for questioning their position or their reasoning. You know, as governments worldwide administered lockdowns, travel limitations, and other restrictions to respond to the pandemic, experts actually warned of a parallel epidemic of government repression. So folks on that side of this view would maintain that governments are using COVID-19 pandemic as a, as a pretext to consolidate political power undemocratically or impose undue restrictions on the exercise of civil and political rights. And meanwhile, even the restrictions, though maybe justified on the basis of public health, the manner of application and the enforcement of these measures may have raised human rights cases and concerns in, in some examples. And that's what we're going to be talking today about in this episode is how COVID-19 gave the opportunity for political leaders with more of an authoritarian bent to take advantage of that and put their thumb on, on the, citizen, the lives of citizens and really 
position themselves for a better political outcome long term. We're going to talk about how this impacted elections and the rights to protest and, of course, closing out with our courses of actions by the United States. But before we do that, let's take a quick ad break and then we will be right back. Welcome back, everyone. Let's take a quick listen to the Secretary of the United Nations and how he addresses this issue of power grabs, essentially, by authoritarian leaders. The rising ethno-nationalism, populism, authoritarianism, and the pushback against human rights in some countries, the crisis can provide a pretext to adopt repressive measures for purposes unrelated to the pandemic. This is unacceptable. More than ever, governments must be transparent, responsive, and accountable. Civic space and press freedom are critical. Civil society organizations and the private sector have essential roles to play. We must ensure that any emergency measures, including states of emergency, are legal, proportionate, necessary, and non-discriminatory, have a specific focus and duration, and take the least intrusive approach possible to protect public health. And he's right, and that's absolutely an issue I think that we're going to see play out in the next several years with politicians, perhaps as more variants of the coronavirus come on board as they continue to use to stifle you know, free and fair elections or just the right of uh, opposite political opinion to voice that opinion. Now, according to a Freedom House report about the impact of COVID-19 and the global struggle for freedom, Democracy and human rights actually deteriorated in 80 countries since the start of COVID-19. The report is based upon a survey of about almost 400 experts in over 105 countries. And the research shows that there's a trend of declining freedom worldwide for the past 14 years that COVID-19 exacerbated and took further. Countries that lack accountability in government, they're suffering the most due to failing institutions and the silencing of critics and opposition. Now, countries such as the United States, Denmark, Switzerland, they've also seen weakened democratic governance, even though Freedom House categorizes them as, quote, free. Even open societies face pressure to accept restrictions that may outlive the crisis and have a lasting effect on liberty. Now, according to the Borgen Project, there are five aspects of weakened democracy during COVID-19 pandemic. One, abuse of power, which is according to the research, the police violently targeted civilians in at least 59 countries. In 66 countries, detentions and arrests have increased during the pandemic response. And two, protection of vulnerable groups. So marginalized communities disproportionately face restrictions and discrimination in those in power often blame them for the spreading of the virus. Three would be transparency anti-corruption. You know, 37% of 65 countries of the research concluded, included, a government transparency was one of the top three issues that affected the government's pandemic response. Now, the report also notes that 62% of respondents said they distrust information from their national government. Four would be free media and expression. Now, the research found that at least 47% of countries in the world experienced restriction on the media as a response to the pandemic. And journalists have been a target of violence, harassment, and intimidation. At least 48% of countries have experienced government restrictions on freedom of speech and expression. And in 25% of, quote, free countries, national governments restricted news media. 
Five, and lastly, credible elections. COVID-19 disrupted national elections in nine countries between January and August of 2020 in the real peak months of the pandemic. And so whenever I'm going through all this data across the world that democracy is being challenged by COVID-19 and political leaders are taking advantage of the confusion and the, the frankly, the fear that citizens feel during the pandemic, I wanted to explore the idea of just individual liberty and how what that means in the context of us as Americans. And though we are a, quote, free country, how could any type of crisis affect our freedoms as individuals? And when you look at liberty, just as a principle in the United States, this country by design had its primary purpose for promoting and protecting the rights of the individual. Now, in other countries, the collective rights of the nation have been established as you know primary, and the rights of the individual citizen are, are secondary. Now, our founding fathers, they employed the principles that, in fact, the purpose of government is to secure individual rights, and the governments derive their powers from the consent of the governed. So since the American government was established to secure, not create, individual rights, that means these rights actually existed before governments. Rights are inherent just to being a human being. The most fundamental right as an individual is just the right to life, the right to exist. All other individual rights really derive from that principle. And additionally, since the power of governments comes from the consent of the government, or the governed, the governed cannot empower governments with rights that individual citizens themselves do not possess. And take this for example. No individual has the right to deprive another person of his or her personal belief or the freedom to express that belief. Therefore, government cannot do that either. But the pandemic, at least in the context of the United States, for example, political leaders really showed their hand, and I would argue their, their hypocrisy in some instances by not giving the same freedom of movement that they're that they the political leaders themselves had and got to exercise and their citizens did not let me give you a few examples you look in california governor governor gavin newsom he was locking down what 33 million citizens in his state but had no problem eating indoors at the french laundry which is a really fancy restaurant in california with members of the california medical association mayor london breed of san francisco ate at the French Laundry that very next day. So two big leaders in this very wealthy state saying regular folks can't go out and eat dinner, but they can, and they're indoors. Here in the town I live in, Austin, Texas, Mayor Steve Adler told all of us that, quote, stay home if you can. He said this in a Facebook video, which he filmed from his vacation timeshare in Cabo San Lucas, where he had just headed with seven others after attending a wedding in Austin, Texas. Mayor Lori Lightfoot of Chicago got her haircut and then called it an essential business activity while at the same time promoting lockdown in her city. Governor Andrew Cuomo actually told everybody, stay home for Thanksgiving and don't go out and travel. And he announced that he was going to actually get together with his daughters and his 89-year-old mother, only then to later reverse that and not do it. I think really the message was obvious. I think 
political leaders in charge, and at least in certain states here in here in America, view their citizens as incapable of making sound decisions for their own health, but they're more than capable of deciding when they can follow a policy or not. And I think the reason some politicians did this was what was revealed during the pandemic was how easily some Americans would just indefinitely suspend their freedoms out of the trust of our elected authorities. I don't think you have to be a COVID-19 skeptic just to question kind of the more authoritarian streak in some politicians. And that was revealed during the pandemic and certainly how we can potentially curb those types of behavior moving forward from our elected officials. And so when I started to really explore and over power grabs by politicians, I wanted to understand both in how elections and, and protest and how that changed during the pandemic. And also I want to know how do politicians make calculations when choosing policies? Is it very clear if we do X, we'll meet Y or Z, or is it more nuanced and gray than that? You know, what factors do they weigh when they consider a course of action? I read this uh, study from VoxEU.org, and it highlighted the political consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic. And they found that during the pandemic, obviously had major political consequences. The balancing act of curbing the spread of the virus and reopening the economy has been a particularly high-profile challenge for a lot of policymakers. So the findings suggest that governments are punished in terms of political approval when COVID-19 infections are accelerating, particularly in the absence of an effective lockdown measure. Now, economic indicators, in contrast, don't appear to be a strong predictor of political approval rates during the crisis. So that kind of tells you what drove a lot of these lockdowns. It was perception by politicians that their approval rating and potential future reelections would be more secure if they appear to be more stringent and strict with their lockdown measures. It really didn't have a lot to do with the economic consequences. So politicians were merely responding to what us as citizens were t- how, telling them how to respond. And governments which failed to contain the virus punished, were punished politically. And the main finding is that there's a negative relationship between COVID-19 infection numbers and political approval across countries and across time. And for example, if you have a leader with a 50% approval rating before the start of the outbreak, that person can expect a weekly decline in approval of 1.8 percentage points under those results. And that's per week. So really, in a nutshell, governments that placed more weight on health outcomes versus those short-term economic outcomes, they gained political support. And moreover, that effect increases over time. At least at the initial stages of the pandemic, leaders benefit kind of from that you know, rallying around the flag effect. You know, let's all pull together. And granted, the benefit of, of doubt because we weren't quite sure what we were dealing with early on. But this token of trust really does fade quickly, and especially after about four weeks, according to the data, growing case numbers increasingly hurt political approval, especially if there wasn't like a stringent policy in place. So we're really only starting to understand the politics of 
the pandemic. So it is possible that you know, looking ahead, the link between the approval and health and health outcomes will change, and or that economics will appear or matter more. You know, just from my point of view, positive support for a politician has waned, at least as the cases have dropped. But then the economic issues, such as inflation, have increased. At least so that would appear to be so. Where I look at when I started to really look into the issue of protest, it occurred to me that it wasn't just a, a consequence here in the United States, but protests around the world had really you know, shifted this landscape. Uh, I found a study, according to Carnegie Endowment, there's over 230 significant anti-government protests that had erupted worldwide. And the more than 110 countries have experienced significant protest. 78% of authoritarian or authoritarian-leaning countries had faced significant protest, and then over 25 significant protests have been directly related to the coronavirus pandemic. Long story short, according to the data, protests against you know, anti-lockdown policies have increased drastically in 2020 and then moving into 2021 as well. There's a couple of clips I want to play for you, both in the context of Europe and Latin America, uh, first from a protest in France and the second from Cuba to get an idea of this is a global issue and how people view the decisions by policymakers and the individual rights to make decisions for themselves. Let's take a quick listen. Over 100,000 people marched across France Saturday to protest against President Emmanuel Macron's plans to force the vaccination of health workers and require a COVID-19 vaccine certificate or negative test to gain entry to bars, restaurants and movie theaters. Demonstrators say Macron's sweeping measures announced this week to fight a surge in COVID infections infringe on their freedom of choice. Vaccinations are really about individual freedom. Everyone can choose. That's not the theme here today. The theme is about the absence of freedom that is unfortunately continuing to grow in this country. That's it. They're taking away our freedoms little by little. Vaccinated or not, we are all together. In a rare show of public defiance, thousands of Cubans flooded the streets yesterday, demanding an end to a decades-long dictatorship and protesting the lack of food and COVID vaccines. Libertad, meaning freedom. Cuba is in its worst economic crisis since the 1990s, and COVID is ravaging the country. All right, so there you have a couple of different contexts to see that this isn't just uniquely an American point of view, but are actually it is across the at least different parts of the world. Europe, more of a collective kind of attitude, certainly a democracy and Western thinking. Cuba, been uniquely a communist country for decades now. But you can see the enthusiasm between these two different peoples and two different groups and how they just want to take their own responsibility for their lives. And more importantly, they want accountable leaders. And so when I started looking at how protests had changed during the pandemic here in the United States, if you look in the immediate aftermath of George Floyd's death, everyone knows that example, health officials really expressed a lot of concern that uh, protesters you know, potentially yelling and shouting very close proximity to each other would quickly spread the virus, which might lead to devastating outbreaks. Uh, but the researchers found that there was no evidence that urban protests reignited COVID-19 case growth 
during the more than three weeks following that beginning of those protests. This is according to Forbes magazine. And in fact, they determined that based on at least cell phone data, cities, cities which had protest saw an increase in social distancing behavior from the overall population relative to cities that did not, leading to modest evidence that a smaller or small, longer-run case growth declined. The study's lead author, a gentleman by Davil Dave of Bentley University, said in many cities, the protests actually seemed to lead to a net increase in social distancing as more people who did not protest decided just to stay out the streets. The study used newly collected data from 315 of the largest U.S. cities, cities and documents that protests took place in 281 of those cities. So the study's conclusions are supported by COVID-19 testing uh, data in many of those cities and were the home prevalent protesting. For example, uh, you look at Minneapolis Department of Health, they reported that there was more than 15,000 people being tested at centers set up in communities affected by those protests, and 1.7% of tests came back positive, which is below the statewide average about 3.6%. Now, according to the Washington Post, protest attendees in Minneapolis returned positively, positivity rates of less than 1%, and that officials believe the low infection rates reflect that the protests were outside, most people wore masks, and that there were people spent most of their time in motion, you know, circulating through the crowd. So, a lot of data to think about. And if all that data is true, and the fact that these types of large-scale protests, which went on for weeks in the United States following George Floyd's death, if mass protests really didn't make COVID-19 cases rise, uh, rise, then you have to ask, why lock down again as more variants come out? Why have politicians continued to keep their own citizens in their homes and force them to only go to the grocery store or back and having, you know, quote, non-essential businesses be shut down. You know, what leads politicians to taking those kind of drastic policy decisions and diminishing the rights of citizens? It's your right to own your business and to run it and to take responsible precautions to keep yourself, your customers safe. You know, what's it about a crisis that allows politicians to really explore kind of more authoritarian tendencies? And when you look at just authoritarianism, it's just as a, as a principle, it's a blind submission to authority, which is opposed to just individual freedom of thought and freedom of action. Now, in a government, authoritarianism denotes any political system that concentrates power in the hands of a leader or a, a small elite that is not constitutionally responsible to the body of the people. Authoritarian leaders, they often exercise their power just arbitrarily without regard to existing bodies of law. And they usually cannot be replaced by citizens choosing freely among various competitors in elections. Now, that definition doesn't perfectly match the constitutional republic here in the United States. But what it does hint to is how political leaders will certainly do what they want based upon their own convictions whether it affects you for the positive or negative, and more importantly, whether they have permission from you or not. A lot of politicians, both the United States and globally, use the COVID-19 pandemic as more as a, a power grab for themselves and able to use the fear that citizens had of this, you know, frankly, deadly virus for a certain portion of the population to 
bend them to their will. Now, in the United States, thank goodness we have a check and balances, both of local, state, and federal governments and the court system, and the court system that allows individuals to pursue their rights under the law that they can fight back against those, that type of power. Other countries don't have that luxury. The point I'm trying to make for you is that, in fact, just because we have this luxury here in the United States, the way our government is designed, we cannot go without question to a, a politician whenever they put in place a, a certain policy, especially that policy that demands that your rights as an individual to make your own decisions and judgment diminishes over time. We have an obligation or a duty to do so and to challenge that politician because at the end of the day, that person works for us. They do. Like what I talked about at the very beginning, a government can't take away the right of an individual because individuals, in fact, can't do that to each other. And I want to give you just a few examples, kind of tying in this power grab across the world, but in the case of the United States, of how the U.S. government would like to track American citizens. I mean, like literally physically track them in order to fight this pandemic or future virus outbreaks. If this COVID-19 showed us anything, was that we need to have accurate data to make an assessment and to make a policy. Now, here's the, I guess the, where you go from white to black and you kind of mix into this gray of where do we go into collecting data is intruding on my freedom as an individual to that balance of public health and keeping everyone safe. Now, you might not realize it, but oftentimes that fancy smartphone you got in your pocket or you got in your purse, the GPS tracking data may be shared by your cell phone's carrier or, for example, if you're regularly using certain applications on your phones that sell that user location information to other companies who then use it for marketing or other purposes. In February, for example, the Wall Street Journal reported that this sensitive location data, it's not just for sale to commercial entities, you know, marketing companies or someone trying to sell you shoes. It's also being purchased by the United States government and its agencies. For example, uh, U.S. Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, ICE, if you've never heard of it, to locate or arrest immigrants, for example. The journal identified one company called Vintel that was selling access to a massive database to the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, to U.S. Customs and Border Protection, and ICE. Now, subsequent reporting identified other companies selling access to similar databases to Homeland Security and other agencies, including the U.S. military. So everyone who's carrying a smartphone and using, whether it's Google Maps or something else, if you're not aware of it, your data tracking location could potentially be sold not just to you know, a marketing company or someone trying to sell you a product, but to an agency of the United States government who wants to track you for whatever their purposes may be. Now, the idea is, well, it benefits the government for policymaking perspectives to know where its citizens move and how they move. That way we can, you know, say, shut down a virus more efficiently, effectively. But this is a dangerous line. A 35% of adults said that they were comfortable if tech companies shared their location data with the government to track COVID-19, while 57% said the opposite. These same folks were asked about whether they were okay with the government using uh, data location data, or excuse me, location data to track them in general. 
One in four said they were comfortable with that idea, and 67% said they were not. That's according to morningconsult.com. So you think about those numbers. Got 25% of individuals saying they were comfortable with the government tracking their data and knowing physically where they were. 35% of adults comfortable with tech companies sharing that with the government to track COVID-19. That's over a third of Americans. We're getting into that point where you have to just say, look, you're an individual. If you want these companies to know where you are and share that with the government, that's your prerogative. But if you're not comfortable with it, do you have that choice to opt out, for example? Or are you seriously reading those privacy, long privacy uh, details before you upload that app to your phone? Because there are both private companies and the government who want to frankly, take advantage of knowing where you are. Now, according to Byron Tao writing a piece about how government officials are using this location data, um, and it's kind of been a bid to better understand the movements of Americans in the pandemic and how they may be affecting the spread of the disease. Now, the federal government, and this is through the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, and state and local governments, they started to receive analysis about the presence and the movement of people in certain areas of geographic interest. And that's all drawn from cell phone data. Uh, People with, uh, for example, the data comes from the mobile advertising industry rather than just the carriers themselves. And the aim is to create a portal of federal, state, and local officials. And it contains the geolocation data and what could be said as many 500 cities across America. And that all is to help plan an epidemic response. And this data, which would be stripped the in, of the identifying information, like the name of that phone's owner, for example, that would be removed. It could help officials learn how coronavirus is spreading through the country and help blunt its advance. Now, this how this plays out beyond just collecting your location data and aggregating that for local, state, and federal forces to see is something called contact tracing application. So this is an app that you would, for example, download on your phone. Because the limitations, and this is according to Brookings Institute, the limitations of testing for COVID-19, just as a silver bullet and helping the get back to work challenge, it underscores the need for a supplemental widespread contact tracing system coupled with quarantines of those who test positive. And the most cost-effective way to implement such a system is through a contact tracing app, which uses your individual smartphone. It's Bluetooth capabilities to detect when they are in the presence of another app-enabled smartphone and to send the identities of the smartphones that it has encountered to the central database. If the system receives a report that someone has contracted the virus, then each of the smartphones that have been in contact with a person's smartphone will be alerted to the possibility that their owners may become contagious in the next brief period of time. So basically, person A, who say is infected with COVID-19, comes in contact with person B and C, their smartphones, through this contact tracing app, then would funnel that information to a central database then be alerted back to those individuals that, hey, you may be in danger of being infected. The whole idea here is that we just have a better idea of where individuals are that are positive of COVID-19 or the future you know, a virus that might be spreading through our country and through the world. Now, on the surface, 
for some people, this, according to at least the data that were polled, they'd be okay with this kind of, I think I'd use the word intrusion into their privacy. They're okay with that because they're willing to sacrifice that freedom of movement, the feeling of being safe, the feeling that we're slowing down a virus or whatever the case may be in the future. They're willing to give up those certain freedoms in order for that security, that blanket of security. Now, they're doing this, I believe, from the fear of you know, a, a deadly virus for some folks in this country and the world, which is, I think, a valid concern. But where will a politician stop? Where will a political body stop with this type of you know, idea? They've already, we've already seen how authoritarian leaders, or at least those in certain countries with authoritarian streaks, will abuse a crisis for their own gain. Now we're giving them full permission to know everything about our pattern of movement and how we live our lives for them to exploit. Now they're going to do it under the guise of, oh, it's purely for public health. But I can't help be skeptical that someone, some politician, some government around the world will take advantage of that, that freedom that people are willing to give them that, in order to make them feel safe about whether it's a virus or, or another issue in the future. So as I assess all these different issues, when I look at the United States for our most likeliest course of action moving forward in any future pandemic, I think a few things will happen. One, there will be a promotion to coordinate efforts between federal, state, and local governments. We've seen that in this pandemic, and I think we'll see that moving forward. Additionally, we'll see a, a representative at the White House National Security Council that will represent the Director of Global Health Security and Biodefense, someone who always represents this kind of scenario right there at the White House. Additionally, we'll see an expand of CDC surveillance and all the tools that are available to uh, the CDC to better track individuals that have contracted this virus or another. And lastly, I do believe America will enhance its domestic manufacturing of pharmaceuticals and personal protective equipment. We've seen what happens when we're struggling to provide PPE for our first-line workers, whether it's medical workers or EMT, police, and so forth. Now, for the most dangerous course of action, I think this would be for the American government to progress in its surveillance efforts, starting from you know, anonymous aggregated data to monitor the movement of people more generally, and then progressing to the tracking of individual suspected patients and their contacts, you know, like I just explained, known as contact tracing. I think this danger of these very new, often highly invasive measures, I think it's going to become the norm. That's the most dangerous thing that the United States could do. If you look at what the government passed here in the United States for the coronavirus economic relief bill, a lot of things were in that piece of legislation, including a $500 million um, surveillance and data collection system for the CDC for them to build out. Now, if you look at how where Americans have come through, uh, building up to the, the uh, Trump administration to go back a little time, how Americans view uh, their freedom. There was a national survey in 2016 uh, 
coming from Matthew McWilliams writing for Politico, and he's highlighting that roughly 40% of Americans tend to favor authority, obedience, and uniformity over freedom, independence, and diversity. And to me, that means that Americans, they will trade freedom just for feeling safe. And I understand the desire to feel protected and not in danger. We make decisions every day to ensure our safety, whether it's driving down the road, crossing street, etc. Now, our rights to make informed, independent, and consensual decisions, it shouldn't just be thrown away so we can feel, quote, safe. We have the capacity to evaluate the data of any issue and make the best decision for ourselves. The moment we turn that decision-making authority over to an unelected bureaucrat will be the day that this independent, build-it-with-my-own-two-hands individual identity that America thrives on, I think it will sadly be lost. So let's not let that happen. Thanks for tuning in this week. You can always follow me on Instagram at Brief Before Impact. I like to share daily Intel updates on issues that affect us all. And I do hope you are picking up what I'm putting down. I am Matt Parker. This is Brief Before Impact. Yeah.